just because I, for the past few days, I don't know, back maybe on Wednesday or so, I just kind of felt prompted as I've been um, going through this book that particularly may not have directly a focus on holiness whatsoever. Um, it's just really been um, stirring me, and I, I feel to share part of it to see if God can grace me and allow me to somehow bridge the two. But for the past few days, since Wednesday, Thursday, God just put some on my heart to share in this series from something I've been studying, something I've been reading. And uh, it may not make a lick of sense. We may drop the ball here today. Um, But I do believe God wants me to communicate it. So that's what I'm going to do is be sensitive to the Holy Ghost. But reading Judges 16, 17, 19, and 22 the theme of what we've been talking about concerning the seven locks of consecration, the story of Samson and his downfall. Delilah uh, deceives him. He tells him all his heart. And he says, if you were to remove my consecration, my strength would go for me and I would be weak just like any other man. And these seven locks of consecration we've talked about, they are the strength of this church. You remove those from our church, we will be weak just like anyone else. And strength and weakness is not a number, okay? And so just because someone has, uh, say, a congregation that is higher in number does not mean that it is a strong church. I've been to churches that are large in number, and uh, there's really not much there. But at the same time, I've been to small churches, smaller than our church, that there is just such a depth there, such a fantastic move of God and grasp of the ways of God. And so I believe we are not a small church. I believe we are a growing church. And importantly to understand is in the fact that, we're not, that we are a growing church, we are a strong church because of these locks of consecration. And so we read that Samson here, uh, he's put to sleep you know, at the knees of Delilah. She cuts off his seven locks of his head, those seven locks of consecration, and he is captured by the enemy. We remove these. The enemy will have victory over us. But you can, as long as there's breath in your lungs, you could, you could have these consecrations grow in your life, added to your life. And if you would add them to your life, you'd allow them to grow again, you will be victorious over the enemy. And we will have more victory in our final chapter of this church than we have in the opening and mid-chapter of this church. In those locks of consecration, we talk about the Word of God, prayer, church, the mighty God in Christ, Jesus' name, baptism, Holy Ghost baptism, and a holiness lifestyle. And I'm approaching the holiness lifestyle just a little differently. Um, it just There's a million ways we could talk about this, a million avenues we can go. But I'm trying to be sensitive to how God wants me to convey a few things. But I'm going to read through a few verses concerning holiness. We talked about it a few weeks ago and what holiness is, that that nature of God setting us apart, His holiness in us. God called us to be holy. We wouldn't talk about it. We wouldn't preach it. We didn't aspire to it if He didn't require it. And for God to require it means we could aspire to it. And it's not our holiness, it's His. But we can have that holy nature of God living within us. And God has called us, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. He didn't call us to uncleanness. God has called us to holiness. Someone say holiness. And Anyone that despises this topic and gets, you know, squirmy about this topic, understand that squirm that's going on in your flesh is the fact that your flesh is uncomfortable with it. And that is a natural tendency because our flesh wants to be carnal, wants to be selfish, wants to be evil, wants to be wicked. 
but God is calling us to be holy. And do not despise that call, because if we go against the grain of holiness, the Bible says you're not fighting man, but God, because God gave us his Holy Spirit. God didn't give you a carnal spirit. God gave you not an evil spirit. God gave you his Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 6, 17, it says, because of that, we need to come out from among them. Someone say them. You need to figure out who them is. You have to know who them is. When you get into the church and when you get into serving God, things are different. We believe in come as you are. We just don't believe stay as you are because the holy power of God is a transforming power of God. And so when God begins to work in your life, he's calling you to come out from among them. And so you need to pray and ask for the help of the Holy Ghost. And if you're having a tough time discerning the voice of God, you know, talk with pastor about it and pastor will pray with you about it and give you some godly counsel and some biblical counsel to help you discern who or what them is. But to be holy as God is holy is to separate yourself from them. Find out who or what them is. Because this command that I'm reading is not my word. It says, be ye separate, saith the Lord, and do not touch the unclean thing. There are certain things here on this planet that are unclean, that you and I have no business touching or interacting or involving ourselves in. And separation is just one evidence of God's intervention. You know when God truly has intervened in a life because separation becomes something that takes part in that intervention. Of course, fruit of the Spirit is other things amongst several others that begin to take place and evident in someone's life that has been intervened by God. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, look, we got these promises, all right? So let's clean ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Paul is talking to the church. This letter is written to the church, the saints of God. And so these are people that have already believed, already repented, already been baptized, already been filled with the Holy Ghost. And he's saying, now that you have that experience and God has promised you a heavenly home, it is up to you to clean yourself from anything that is filthy in the flesh and in the spirit. And we talked about how holiness is not just something internal. It is also external. But it's not just external. It's also internal. And don't pick one or the other. It's not about one or the other. It's both and. It just simply starts within. You can strive to a lifestyle of holiness when you are filled with that Holy Spirit of the living God. Because without His Holy Spirit, we're just living a moral life. But I'm not interested in living a moral life. I'm interested in living a holy life. And it just happens to be that you'll find morals in a holy lifestyle. And so He says, you got to do this. You got to be responsible for your salvation, your walk with God, and clean yourself from the filthiness of the flesh, the filthiness of the spirit. And look at this. It says perfecting holiness. That word perfecting means to fulfill further. Yes, you have started in this, but don't stop where you're at. Fulfill further. That is what it means to be perfecting holiness. Further 
fulfill or completely fulfill. It goes on to say in the Greek to execute or by implication to undergo, to finish, to complete, to perform. So what God initiated in you, just because you start the car doesn't mean the car's going anywhere. You got to get it out of park. You got to get it in reverse. You got to turn around. You got to head a direction. You got to put the pedal to the metal. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, that in the life that we are living in this atmosphere, this world that we're in, you're going to come across churches. You're going to come across people that have a form of godliness, but they deny something about it. They desire or they deny the power of it. And it says from such turn away, meaning that you're going to find people just like what pastor's preaching today. You're going to find people that could that, that can justify their lifestyle and convince you of something that you may disagree that is preached from the Word of God. You can justify just about anything. And so he says you can find people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of that. And it says when you start trying to associate with people that can convince you of a lifestyle that lacks in conviction and lacks in consecration, you better be careful. You need to turn away from that. Don't entertain that. Don't let that be an influence in your life. It's broken down a little more easier in the New Living Translation. I have it up there for you in 2 Timothy 3, 5. It says, they will act religious. Check this out. Here's these religious friends that you and I probably all have. We know people that are believers that are religious, but they reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Just because you have a ton of friends or a handful of friends that are quote-unquote believers, Christians, or whatever, they have a form of religion. They act like they're spiritual or religious. But if they reject the very power, what's that power? Ye receive power after what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Remember that spirit that gives you power is holy. It's the power to be holy. It's the power to have a holy witness, a separate witness, a pure witness, a clean witness, a distinct difference, a separate than anyone else kind of witness. When you find or rub shoulders with somebody that their life rejects that power that can make them godly or can make them pure or make them holy, you better cut off that from influencing you before it convinces your flesh to quench the spirit and say, wow, I guess it doesn't really matter how I live because my friend's a believer, my family member's a believer, and they get to watch whatever they want, and they get to say whatever they want, and they get to go wherever they want. Unfortunately, I'm not, I'm not here dissing, slamming, damning, condemning people like that. But I am warning a church that wants to strive to be holy and make it to heaven. Friends like that are not out for your best interest. They're out to feed your flesh. And pastor and the word of God is not here to feed your flesh. I'm here to feed this most holy faith praying in the Holy Ghost. And so we read here in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul, I believe Paul personally wrote this letter. It's my opinion. But whoever the writer may be says this. 
For they verily for a few days chastened us. Talking about parents. Parents disciplined us. And they did it to what they believed was right. Not like their own pleasure in a sadistic type of way of like they just enjoyed, you know, beating the tar out of us. That's not what that means. But the reason why parents, at least parents, should discipline their kids. I'll let you think about that for a moment. After they discipline, here's the motive behind it. It's for our benefit. For our profit, they're trying to correct us. They're trying to help us. And see, the Bible says when a parent disciplines their kid, they're, they're acting like their creator. God disciplines his people. Why? Not because God has some, some twisted view that he takes pleasure in inflicting people. But the motive of God is to correct us and get us back on the right course. That's the purpose of correction. Anytime your spiritual authority corrects you, it's not because he has some sort of twisted mindset to dictate your life. He's trying to correct you on the right course, at least if his motive is pure and appropriate. And so the Bible says God does that for our profit or our benefit. Why? So we can be partakers of his holiness. I want to partake of God's holiness. God is offering it to me, and so I want to partake of it. I don't want to miss what God is extending to me. Now look at this. This same writer, the same writer, just, just seven chapters prior says this. We have many things to say. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it's an amazing book. It's in a fascinating read. It's engaging. There's wonderful things that we glean from, insights. And he says, I got a lot to say. You could tell he's a pastor because he's got a lot to say. And he says, it's hard to be uttered. I'm having difficulty saying what I'd like to say because you're dull of hearing. Now think about that. The writer here says, there's, th- there's a lot more I want to say to you in this sermon. There's a lot more I want to say to you in this church setting, but I can't say it to you because there, these statements are at another level of discipline and consecration. They're at a, for another type of spiritual depth, and I can't give it to you because you are dull of hearing. You are not mature enough to receive it. Now, now, I'm not making this implication in this room right now. What I'm trying to help us to see is what's going on in this church here. Here in the book of Hebrews, as he's writing to these, these people of God, he's writing to the Hebrew people. And he says, there's a lot more I like to say, and they're deep things, they're profound things, but I can't say them because of where you're at. If you like the book of Hebrews, imagine, uh, Brother Dave Gustafson and I were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. Imagine how much more rich and how much more depth the book of Hebrews would have had that we could read if there was a people ready to receive. But Paul says, I can't give this to you because you're not willing to move forward. You're not willing to go get weaned off of the milk and start teething and chew on meat. I wonder what it was that Paul would have delighted to share and expound in the depths and the riches and the treasures of God. He had some hard things to utter, but he could not. Jesus faced the same dilemma in John chapter 6, verse 60. When he was trying to lead the people somewhere, the disciples responded to Jesus. Jesus, 
This is a hard saying. Would everyone participate for a moment and say hard saying? There we go. That's better than earlier. A hard, this is difficult. Jesus, what you're saying is the difficult, is hard saying. Who can hear it? Who possibly can live up to this expectation? Who possibly can do what you're asking, Jesus? Who possibly can live this way? And Jesus knows what the disciples are feeling and sensing, and he turns to them, and he says this to the disciples in verse 61. Is what, am I, is what I'm saying offending you? Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. He knows the answer, and he knows their thoughts. He says, what I'm asking you to do and what I'm calling my people to live at this level of consecration, at this, this, this level of holiness, this, this walk, this discipleship, is this bothering you? Is this a hard saying for you? Is this offending you? And finally, the Bible says in verse 66, at that time, many of Jesus' followers, his disciples went back and they walked no more with him. The easy thing for Jesus would have been, I'm just not going to address the issue because, man, this is the most people we've ever had at uh, this building. This is the most people I've ever had uh, preaching from this boat. This is the most people I've ever had at the hillside. This is the most amount of people that have ever congregated in a room to hear me speak. I don't want to thin out the crowd. But Jesus, his heart was like that of a parent. I want I want to let you know. I'm going to inform you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to expound to you so I can get you on the course that is worthy to be on that straight and that narrow. But when he did that, Jesus knew the cost, and many people walked away from Jesus. And Jesus, in his humanity, in his concern, in his compassion, because no preacher worth his salt, no preacher worth a, a, a lump of anything that actually has concern and compassion wants to see anyone ever walk away from the church. Nobody takes pleasure in watching someone walk away from the hope and the answer. And so Jesus says to the disciples, after a multitude walk away, he says, will you go away also? Ask yourself this question in your mind. When you hear something from the Word of God, and when God speaks to you through the sermon, and when God speaks to you through the written Word, and when God speaks to you in prayer, and it is a hard saying, it is a tough pill to swallow, will you also walk away? But here's the understanding that you must have. You must have the understanding that Peter had. Jesus... Where else can I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Peter had a tough time with the sayings of Jesus. But Peter had more understanding than he did of that tough stuff, uh, tough stain. He may not have understood that statement, that doctrine, that declaration that Jesus made. But what Peter did understand, and what we need to understand before we try to understand every doctrine, is there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. I may not understand a particular lock of consecration, whether it be prayer, whether it be the word, whether it be a church attendance, whether it be the Holy Ghost, whether it be baptism, whatever that struggle may be. Before you abandon ship, you're less likely to fall off that ship if you got a foundation saying, this is my anchor. This is my foundation. There's nowhere else 
to go. So what is a hard saying? Everyone say hard saying. Everyone say a little louder so I can hear you. What is a hard saying? Well, we definitely don't have the time to go through every page of the Bible right now because the Bible is full of hard sayings. I'll throw a couple at you, and I'll put a few on the screen. Here's a hard saying. Jesus, what do I do when someone slaps me? Give them the other cheek to slap. That's a hard saying. What, what if someone asks to borrow something, and, 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 and uh, I don't like the person? Jesus, give them that coat and give them more than that anyways. What, what, what if someone wrongs me, you know, like, like 70 times in a day? What if someone keeps lying to me that many times? Should I forgive them? Jesus said, you forgive them above and beyond. Never stop forgiving them. Forever forgive them. Another heart saying, if you deny me before people, I'll deny you in heaven. That's a hard saying. Jesus says, if, if you don't pick me over your parents, you're not worthy to follow me. That is a hard saying. There's a lot of those in the Bible. But remember, you got to establish this because a hard saying is going to come your way. It's going to, if it's never happened, the day will happen. It might be today, it might be next week, but the day will come where a hard saying just catches you off of guard and it's going to offend you, it's going to harm you. But what you need to solidify is there's nowhere else to go. I don't like what I feel, and I don't understand what I hear, but I'm going to wait it out, and I'm going to pray it out, and I'm going to search it out, and I promise you, one day you'll understand it better by and by. I'm going to throw a few out there for you real fast, and I'm not going to expound on every one of these because this is not my focus for today, but I want you to at least write these down potentially so you can look at them and maybe could start to consider them and to start praying about them because this consecration, this lack of consecration is called holiness, and it's internal. It's external. It's all components of our life, but I'll throw a few verses that I believe are hard saints for our culture in this hour. Deuteronomy 22, 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. All that do so are abomination to the Lord thy God. That is a hard saying in 2018. If cross-dressing was a difficulty thousands of years ago when people struggled with it, how much more difficulty is it today in a politically correct environment that actually endorses and celebrates removing gender distinction completely altogether? This is a hard saying in the hour in which we live. you got to ask yourself, well, what am I going to do with that? Am I just not going to ever read that verse again, never think about that verse again? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It's not important. Or... Is every word of God pure? And is every word of God forever established in heaven? And does every word of God that I come across, am I held accountable to it? you got to understand this is a hard saying. Just like if I was to stand in front of you today in a dress, most of you would either walk out or laugh and not take anything I said serious for the rest of this sermon. Because you're like, what in the world is pastor doing wearing a dress? Because you know pastor is a man and man 
wear pants. It's, it's, it's not that difficult to register and vice versa. It's not that difficult as much as our culture does everything it can. But just because I wear pants doesn't make me holy or just because a woman wears a skirt, that doesn't make her holy. It all starts from within. And when you're baptized with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit will begin. And hopefully, if you're praying in the Spirit, reading in the Spirit, studying the Spirit, living a life determined to walk in the Spirit, it will bleed out in every facet of your life. What is a hard saying? First Peter 3, 3. Your adorning or your apparel or your external. This is Peter in the New Testament. Don't let it be the outward of plating the hair and wearing of gold, putting on of apparel. It says, don't get caught up in all this gold. Don't get caught up in all this jewelry. That is a hard saying in 2018. If it was tough then, it's even tougher now because those things are basically a status symbol, a wealth symbol. Uh, It's drawing attention to self. But Peter goes on to say, let it be the hidden man. Let people see your heart. Don't let people see all this external stuff. Let them see your heart. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. I will that men pray everywhere. What? That's a hard saying. It's embarrassing to pray. It's, it's humiliating to pray when there's no one else in the room. Or when you're in a room full of people and you're talking to a person that no one else sees. That's a tough thing in a, a logical, rational type of, I'm, I'm a scientist, you got to prove me. If you can't put it under this microscope, it doesn't exist, it's not real. It's tough. To live that life, especially as a man where you try to be the self-sufficient one, the providing one. But now you got to lift up your hands and surrender and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. I, that's tough in this era of trying to be some self-made individual. And to do it without wrath and to do it without doubting. That's a hard saying. A hard saying is the next verse. In the same manner also, women adorn themselves in modesty. Modest apparel. Not immodest apparel. Now, I know this is a hard, it's, it's an easier saying in South Dakota when things start turning to October and November and December. But through uh, clothing technology, it's not uh, really all that much uh, modesty because now you can you get away with some pretty tight stuff, I guess. And so here we go. The Bible says in this day, in this hour, in the New Testament church, this is a hard saying. We ought to be modest, to not draw undue attention to ourselves, especially in an immodest manner, which shamefacedness, that word shamefacedness means don't, don't do yourself up to draw attention to yourself. You should have a bashfulness about you. I don't want to draw attention to my flesh. I want people to see the hidden man of the heart because people always say, well, you know, it's God looks on the heart. Yes, he does. And do you want people to see God in your heart? Then you need to stop drawing attention to your flesh. If you want people to see the spirit, stop showing off the flesh. It gets quiet in church sometimes. I understand that. But look, I would not be doing my job as a pastor by leapfrogging hard sayings by leapfrogging the Holy Scripture and says, don't get into gold, into pearls, into costly array, but you need to have a life that professes godliness with good works. That's a hard saying. We're getting somewhere. I know uh, maybe everyone's going to walk out at once. I don't know. But look at this. 
hard sayings. This is the Bible, just in case you did not know what we are reading. New Testament. Doesn't nature itself teach you if a man has long hair, it is a shame to him? That's a hard saying in a day and age where we have freedom of expression. You do it however you want to do it. You wear it however you like to wear it. Don't judge me. Don't tell me what to do. And then it goes on in the next verse. If a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her, for her hair is for a covering. When you read 1 Corinthians, it says men cut your hair, women don't cut your hair. That is a hard saying. And just like the disciples, many walked away from Jesus because they didn't like the hard saying and they didn't understand the hard saying. But everyone that understood the heart of Jesus, they didn't understand the doctrine at the time, but they knew his heart towards them was that of a father. Just like your children, they might be young and they may not understand the hard saying and the discipline in the moment. But your child, after you discipline with a loving heart, your child comes back to you and looks at you and wants you to hold them and wants you to hug them. And they give you a kiss. Why? Because they know that you are a good parent and that you love them. But the day will come where they will grow and mature and they'll understand those hard sayings. Now look at Hebrews. You go back here, chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men. And if any of these you have a question, I'm not expounding on every one of these verses right now. But if any of them are a hard saying and you're like, what in the world? I've never seen that before. I never thought about it. What does that mean? That's why you have a pen and paper. You jot that down. And pastor loves to sit and talk about these things in detail with you. I have no problem doing that. I'm not hiding nothing. But look at this. Follow peace with all men and holiness. I don't say holiness. This, these things, these hard sayings, I want all of them. I want to wholly or completely follow God. Holiness is completeness completely giving God every area, every facet of your being. And it says you got to follow and pursue holiness, and without it, you cannot see the Lord. Before you brush off, roll your eye and say, this all sounds like control, this sounds like legalism, this sounds like a cult, a, a book that's telling me I should actually uh, consider what I do with my life, that's out of control. Just before you write that off, remember, if you're wanting to enter through those pearly gates, there is a lifestyle that is permitted to pass and a lifestyle that is not allowed to walk in. And so we got to look diligently. You got, you got to put the effort. You got to be diligent into this and begin to look. Just like we talked last week about the wells of salvation. You got to look in that well. Start digging in that well. Start skimming that well and see if there's any dead cats in there. See if there's a root of bitterness springing up in there. Because you don't want a hard saying to offend you. Because if you let a hard saying offend you, you're going to fall hard one day. And you're not going to enjoy the contact of that hard fall. Trust me on that. I'm reaching with compassion and love. We read in Hebrews 12.1 that we are compassed, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So lay aside any weight and any sin that would try to get you off the course. Now people may say, well, a, a life of holiness is hard. A life of holiness, that, that's hard. But the truth is, now listen very carefully. If, if you've, you've tuned me out and you're kind of like wandering and doing a crossword puzzle right now, People might say that a life of holiness is hard. But the truth is, the way of the heathen is hard. That's the truth. Not the way of the holy, the way of the heathen. That is hard. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 13, 15, if you have good understanding, remember Peter had good understanding. 
I understand Jesus loves me. And I understand he's looking out for my best interest. I understand that. And God favored Peter. God favored that man and gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven because he stayed with him over time, though he did not understand him the entire time. But eventually, Peter got the revelation. This Jesus, I, his heart, I, I, something about his heart, something about his emotion, there's something about his investment in my life. He's God in the flesh. He's the son of the living God. He got revelation and understanding, and God gave him favor because he stayed with Jesus. Stay with it. But the Bible says the way of transgressors is hard. Living a sinful life is a lot harder. I'm sorry. You could say, man, that's hard. I don't know if I could uh, uh, live that life abstaining from alcohol and abstaining from drugs and abstaining from, you know, uh, uh, sexual promiscuity. That's, that's a hard way. I'm telling you, the way of a transgressor is hard. The way of cirrhosis of the liver, that's hard. The way of cancer of the lungs, that is hard. The way of a sexually transmitted disease, that is hard. Look, living pure unto God is the easiest life you can live. It's the most helpful, clean, purifying, supporting, edifying life you can live. Doing a life of I can do whatever I want and God doesn't care, I promise you, that way, the Bible says, is hard. And yes, there's a price to pay for living holy. People are going to insult you. People are going to make fun of you. What? What? You wear you wear skirts? You wear dresses? What? Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You 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 cut your hair or you don't cut your hair, you know, depending if you're male, female. You know, they, and yes, people may what? You don't go you don't drink? What? What? You're going to keep yourself pure until you're married? What? Yes. Yes, that may have a level of or degree of difficulty. But look, I reckon, as Paul reckoned in chapter 8, verse 18 of Romans, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. The day, see, I'm just living a life of holiness right now. But one day I shall see him as he appears. And it does not appear what I am, what I'm going to be. But when I see him, I shall be like him. I am actually going to have the holiness of God on my life when I stand in heaven. His holy presence will emanate from my transformed, glorified body. I may not get it right now, and I may suffer some right now, but what is that suffering in the grand scheme of things when I get to see Jesus, when I get to join holy angels and sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Someone say praise the Lord. These locks of consecration and this one called holiness is so vitally important. Now, this is what I don't know if I can cross the bridge very well and if I could connect the dots very well, but this is what I feel to share to hopefully tie in a point. I'm reading a book, and I would highly recommend you get this book if you're looking for something to mess you up. When I was in Dubai, and I, I shared some of that testimony being out in Dubai and those pastors, what they go through, it unbelievable. Unbelievable out in the Gulf states and the Arab nations. Unbelievable. And um, before I left, the missionary or representative, he told me this. He goes, I'd like to buy you a book. I go, well, you don't have to do that. He goes, well, I'm going to because it's the book that messed me up. I'm like, oh, great. All right. Yeah. Give me a book that's going to mess me up. And it was called The Insanity of God. I'm not done reading it. I'm three quarters of the way reading it. And, uh, I mean, every, every night I read it, I weep. And if you want something to challenge you, I would recommend 
Save up a few dollars fast from Hardee's. Don't get the Monster Thick Burger. That's $29. And get yourself this book. It, it would be well worth it. It starts off a little rough, in my opinion, if you want a book review. But it gets good. And I, I, I got a number of excerpts. I don't know if I have time to read it all. It's 2.51 p.m. I'm trying to be conscious of your time. But I'm going to read a number of excerpts from this book. Okay? This man is, he went to Somalia during that civil war in the 90s, uh, the, the aftermath of it all. It was absolute. he was the first one out there as a humanitarian effort. There was no humanitarian effort out there when he went out there. It's absolutely crazy. And he said as he's trying to get everything together, he realizes the supply line for evil was better established and a lot more efficient than the supply line for good. And he was not sure at all if he could do anything to change that when and if he managed to get back to Nairobi. And, and here's what his staff consists of, these, these, these undercover missionaries. They, they, they would be away from their families for a month at a time. While their families were in Nairobi, they'd be separated from their spouses and their children for a month at a time doing this work. And they, um, one story goes into he found some Somalian believers. There was like virtually none. There's like none, but he found four. And so they, they found a secret place to have communion, the Lord's Supper together. And right after that, those four Somalian believers were executed. Their teenage son, this, this particular, his pseudonym or whatever is Nick, his teenage son dies, and instead of going back to the States, they stay. They stay there and have a funeral there, not in the States. And then militant Islamists, uh, you know, are, are tired of, you know, these, these, these Westerners coming, trying to convert people. And uh, so they start, everything they're touching, the Islamists put unwanted posters and start killing off. And so these Islamists put the, this guy's bodyguards on a wanted poster. And all the bodyguards, everyone like on his staff virtually was Muslim. And, but he, that's the only way he could be protected is with mu- these, these guys. And they were, they were uh, uh, not extremist Muslims. They were con- uh, contemporary or whatever you want to call it. And they, they, they didn't have that view. But anyways, they saw their pictures on these wanted posters. And they, they ran into this man's tent and started pleading with him. You've got to get our names off of these posters. You know we're not Christian. You know we didn't convert to Christianity. You've got to get our names off of here. They're going to kill us. And, and this Christian man says, well, what, what, do you, what do you expect me to do? And he said, go to their headquarters and tell them we're not Christian. And he's like, you want me to go to the, the extremist headquarters and tell them not to kill you? And they're like, yes. So this missionary walks to the seat of Satan, walks to the very place of the people that are persecuting him, and says, these guys are not Christian. They are my bodyguards. They protect me. They have never converted. That's, that's this is the kind of man. This is a very interesting read. But here's, here, here's something. It was surprised as he walked away. He walked away surprised that he was alive. You know, because they thought they would just kill him on the spot. But there was an article not too long after that that he read that said this. A militant Islamist had written a letter to the editor asking, why bother killing Somali Christians? Wouldn't it be more effective strategy just to kill the Westerners as they, uh, that they associate who that uh, might convert them. The editor responds this way, killing Westerners, he wrote, might turn them into martyrs. So it is not cost effective to kill Western Christians whose deaths might possibly inspire additional committed believers to come to our country and to take up each martyr's mantle. If, however, we kill off their converts, 
the editor predicted. The Western Christians will be afraid and they will go home. The editor's conclusion was chilling. These Western Christians will not be able to watch their converts be killed. When their converts are killed, the Western Christians will leave. There's an important lesson here that I felt God had prompted on my heart. The enemy knows better than to kill us physically. So he kills everything that you touch so he can kill your spirit. Because if the enemy could ever kill the spirit of this church and the efforts that we put forth and the people that we are reaching, he will destroy this church. We will just be an empty, hollow shell of a people. The devil is afraid to try to kill off any one of us because he knows he's going to create a martyr. But see, if he can kill the work that we're working, then he will sap us of our energy. And some of you, you know what I'm talking about. The people you've been discipling, the people you've been witnessing, the people you've been inviting to church, the people you see get the Holy Ghost, and all of a sudden, just a month later, they fall off the wagon. Just a year later, they're nowhere to be found in this building. The enemy knows how to attack that which we are working so diligently upon. But I want to encourage you. The reason why that enemy is doing that is he knows the power that we have. These locks of consecration, they are superior. They are more powerful. They are vital. They are victorious. We shall persevere. He said this, I knew that God had never promised to reward obedient sacrifice with measurable success. He said, though, the thing that this man at this point in the book, he's struggling with the thought of what is he doing in Somalia? Everything he does, everything he touches is killed. And he's, he's actually intimidated to help anybody out because everything he helps gets killed. He goes to a group, uh, 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 a, a village, and he feeds those people. And when he brings, that people have absolutely no food. But because he brought food to them, then the pirates, the extremists, jump on that territory. They rob all their food, and they rape all the women, and they kill all the children. So any good he tries to do is killed. And so he's struggling with this. And here's what he says. Jesus spoke this. As sheep among wolves, I send you. Still, Jesus knew he sent us as sheep amongst wolves. But he expected them to prevail. In the history of the world, no sheep has ever won a fight with a wolf. This idea from God is insane. I send you as sheep amongst wolves. We go on reading here, and he starts talking about, at this point in the book, I, I, man, I'm not going to finish. You guys okay? Is everyone okay? We got a few minutes? I, I, mean, I feel the Holy Ghost. Um, so at this point in the book, he's, he's struggling with his faith. And so what he does after, after like, uh, all the resources get spent, like, nobody else is sending resources to Somalia. The U.N.'s quitting. Everybody's quitting on Somalia. It's like a hopeless cause. And so here he is trying to keep it going, but people are like, what's the good? Every time, we, you know, they keep killing Christians, and they keep de uh, destroying everything. And so people stop giving, and so his organization is deflating. And so he goes back to a college, and he's on a furlough, and he's, he's trying to just register everything he saw and everything he went through watching all these children murdered and women raped. It's, just, it's, it's terrible. And, um, and so he wonders what it's like in other countries that have come out of persecution because he wants to go back to Somalia, but he wants to know how to win. 
And so he goes to, to different parts of Russia, USSR, you know, the Iron Curtain, goes to places, communist China, and finds underground churches or places now that they can legally have church and talk to the people that survived it. And I, I don't have time to read them all. I have so many that I jotted down here, but I'm going to hurry up. It's 2.59. One group, in their time of persecution, none of the people, none of the underground church had Bibles. Nobody had a Bible. Okay? And they decided to be bold and have a conference. And so all they had a youth conference where all the young people got together. This was in Russia, some part in Russia. I don't know how the extent of the Iron Curtain, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But anyways, they, they, they come together, and they, they decide to kind of play a little game. And they said, let's see, let's see if we can put the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together with this group here. And let's see how many songs we can bring together with this group here. And so that group came together. And after a couple days at the end of the conference, they compared and combined their efforts of all the small groups. And the young people, the young people created all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with only a half dozen mistakes. They, they recreated the lyrics of more than 1,200 songs in the Scripture from memory. And at this point, it's 10 years after the, the, the communist reign is over, and he's surrounded in this home asking these questions, and, and there's some young people in that room that are the next generation, and he asked them to quote Scriptures and songs, and they could not do it. Another situation was... They were uh, tormenting and, and uh, persecuting pastors, and they, they, um, they would escort these pastors to make them do impossible tasks and beat them because they could not do it. They stripped these pastors down to their underwear. They would douse them with ice water, feed them stale crust, bread, and water for supper, then herd them back into freezing cells to sleep for the night. And then they would make, make these pastors uh, uh, that would stand for conviction, they would... Um, they uh, continue to preach the gospel. Local government authorities. Oh, here. I'm sorry. I'm misreading this. What happened when these pastors got in prison, all that government did was they found pa- new pastors that would preach what the government wanted to preach in those churches. They replaced them. And then he, he made this statement of this one pastor that was put in prison. And this is the pastor's story. He says, I remember the day like it was yesterday, Nick. My father put his arms around me and my sister and my brother and guided us to the kitchen to sit around a table where he could talk with us. My mom was crying. I knew that something was wrong. Papa didn't look at her because he was talking directly to us. He said, children, you know that I am the pastor of our church. That's what God has called me to do, to tell others about him. I have learned that the communist authorities will come tomorrow to arrest me. They will put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing that because I must obey God. I will miss you very much, but I will trust God to watch over you while I am gone. He hugged each one of us and he said, and then he said this, all around this part of the country, the authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authorities will line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they are dead. I don't want that to happen to our family. So I am praying that once they put me in prison, they will leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused and made eye contact with us. If I am in prison and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus, I will be the most proud man in that prison. He 
He said, I was sure that I've never told that a father should value his faith over his family. He said, if our family has to starve for Jesus, let us do so with joy. As the communist government began to move in, they, uh, or, or when this story, this guy was sharing this story, the interviewer, this missionary guy, this Westerner, he, he, said, he says, why didn't you guys collect all these stories into books? Why, aren't, why don't you guys have any writings about this? Why, why didn't you do this? These are inspiring. And that pastor said, he said, son, when did you stop reading your Bible? All of our stories are in the Bible. 